you, Erica. Good morning. I got some props and I got a handout. So you guys love my handouts, don't you? So if I could get some people to pass out my handouts. I don't give them to you early with the welcome team because I don't want you to like read them during the songs or the prayer or anything. Uh, so good morning, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here at Waypoint. Our uh, senior pastor, Pastor Lawrence, and his wife, Gina, and their son, Josiah, actually uh, would have been this morning in China, picked up their, met their son, their new son, Hudson, and we'll actually see some pictures and rejoice in that uh, during the announcement time. But so in his stead, I'm preaching, and uh, this is our last sermon in Hebrews. Um, this past week has been a crazy, busy time for me and my family. We're selling our house in Raleigh so we can move to Durham. Uh, and we needed to do a few updates, a few repairs, some deep cleaning before we could put our house on the market. And let me tell you, it's not like the HGTV shows. It's nothing like the HGTV shows. On those shows, they only show the fun, the smiles, maybe the guy with the sledgehammer. Um, and they condense into 25 minutes, hundreds of hours of hard work and labor. I mean, literally, hundreds of hours. And uh, they make things look all shiny and new and easily obtained. When I was a kid, my dad used to watch these bass fishing shows and the guys just kind of like cast one cast and they catch a big fish. And then I'd go out with my dad and we'd be out all morning and all afternoon and catch no fish. And I think they don't show you the in-between on those shows. They just show you the final results. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been hard. I thought the results would come quicker than they're coming. Um, so we're moving stuff from room to room. We got painters and floor sanders and windows installers coming and going, and we're painting and fixing and cleaning. The last time I, I was thinking about it, the last time I was, had such a physically grueling and tiring schedule was when we moved from Boston to the Triangle six years ago. So I, I was like, man, moving is hard. I think in psychology or sociology, they, they have this scale and like a death in the family is like a 10, but moving's like an eight or a nine. It's, 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 it's a stressful, stressful thing, especially when you have a family with kids and you collect a lot of junk over time and you shove it into different corners. When we, when we moved from Boston, we had to pack everything we owned in one pod from our third floor Boston apartment down and uh, a side note, my MIT friends, I had some friends from our church who were MIT engineers and scientists, they were pretty impressed on how I packed the pod so tightly and fit almost all of our stuff. So uh, I have some pod packing skills, but I'm not the best at painting and just doing all the other stuff. And the deeper you, our house is 35 years old, the deeper you get into the house, like you start scraping, and then you find out that there's something else that goes wrong, and then you paint a line, so I paint the gray, but then I messed up the white. Then I paint the white, then I messed up the gray. And um, a few weeks ago, a real estate agent walked through our house and just su suggested a few updates. Hey, just some fresh paint here, and why don't you do this and get some new windows? And it seemed so easy. I was like, yeah, in a week or two, we should have all that knocked out. Here we are four weeks later, and we're close. Um, so as I get deeper and deeper into these projects, I feel more and more overwhelmed and unequipped. I know there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that God will sell our house in Raleigh 
and he'll, he'll provide a, a perfect house for us here in Durham. A house that will allow us to love and serve him and love and serve our neighbors. But right now, as I look around our house, I do feel overwhelmed and unequipped. And I was, as I was writing this sermon in my head, literally I'm scraping, I'm painting, and I was writing the sermon this week. So I didn't write the sermon really on paper until yesterday. I wrote most of it as I'm like struggling with, with you know, holes in the wall and, and wood rot and contractors who don't show up. And, and, and I'm writing this sermon in my head and, and I'm daily calling the, manu- the door manufacturer in Arizona, asking him why the doors that should have been shipped two weeks ago still aren't shipped and where are they? And he tells me that they're on a train somewhere. And I'm writing this sermon and I'm fixing our house and God is just showing me so much of my sin and just so much of the reality of, of the way it is through this project. Um, and he's teaching me about myself, my brokenness, and my utter need for him. And just like I've continually felt overwhelmed and unequipped in home repair, I think many times I feel overwhelmed and unequipped in my own life. And I forget God's goodness and his promises to me. I think this condition is common to all of us who are followers of Jesus. We want peace. We want confirmation. We want hope. We want to have our needs met. We want help. We want guidance. We want to be equipped with what we need to, to thrive and succeed in life. But then we look around. We actually see the house. And we, see the, we see all the flaws. When you're selling your house, you notice all the flaws. We lived there six years. I didn't notice like, that the paint lines weren't straight. You know, and, and you look around and you feel hopeless and overwhelmed and unequipped just to live each day. Well, I have good news for you. Hebrews has been addressing this all along, and, and Hebrews 13 addresses these fears directly. And as I was studying this and praying through this chapter, um, I begin to see that there's incredible peace and hope that we have in Jesus. So for this morning, I have four goals for the sermon. One, to summarize Hebrews, because this is our last uh, sermon in the series. Two, to give you a chance to reflect on what God taught you as you studied Hebrews personally. We studied it as a congregation, but we've all also been thinking and pondering each week in our small groups and as you come here on Sunday morning. The third thing, I want to look briefly at the exhortation and benediction the author gives us at the end of the letter in, in chapter 13. And finally, I want to look um, at the benediction of Hebrews and in the, these two phrases, the phrase equip you with all you need and the phrase produce in you every good thing. Some translations say everything good. Uh, so I entitled the sermon every good thing. And I want us to think about what this means for us individually and as a local body of Christ. Uh, so we've been studying Hebrews since January. So five solid months. We made it. Good job, church. This is a very central, important book. So we wanted to study it slowly and carefully because it shows us who we are as believers. It it links a lot of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And most importantly, it shows us who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. So here we are the last week. And I'm just going to read a summary, a brief summary of Hebrews from uh, Australian New Testament College scholar Peter O'Brien. So listen along to my summary. I mean, as I read his summary. The main theme of Hebrews is a written sermon. So this is actually, most scholars think this is kind of a sermon. Can you imagine 
showing up on Sunday morning and hearing one person read the whole thing. Erica read um, just one chapter today. Um, the main theme of Hebrews, a written sermon, is the absolute supremacy of God's Son, Jesus Christ, in whom God has spoken his climatic word. Those addressed were struggling with the cost of their commitment to Christ. Being a Christian did not appear to bring any real advantage to them. In fact, it marked them out for a fresh experience of suffering. The cost of following Christ meant public abuse from non-Christians and the loss of their property, their freedom, and perhaps even their lives. But, God, but God's gracious purpose is to bring many sons and daughters to glory, thereby fulfilling his design for creation. So it was fitting that he should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered, that he should make Jesus perfect through what he suffered. The perfect Son of God has inaugurated the new covenant. His high priesthood is better than the Le Levitical system. His once and for all sacrifice is superior to all those under the Mosaic covenant because he has made atonement for the sins of the people, including a definitive cleansing of their consciences. And he won an eternal redemption. The purpose of God's earlier revelation in the Old Testament was to anticipate and point all the blessings that Jesus has brought. The theme of Christ's supremacy serves the important pastoral and exitory goal of Hebrews, to warn the hearers not to turn aside from the gospel they had received, but to endure faithfully in order to reach God's eternal Sabbath rest in the heavenly city. So that's a great summary of Hebrews. I'll actually put that summary on the city so you guys can unpack it. And it has the Bible passages with the summary. And then O'Brien goes to, if he says, if you want to sum up Hebrews in one sentence, we'll put this on the screen. So you don't have to write that in your notes if you're a note taker. Because Jesus is utterly supreme, Christians should stick with him alone, whatever happens. Because Jesus is utterly supreme, we as Christians should stick with him alone, whatever happens. So O'Brien's one of the, you know, he studied the book of Hebrews his whole life. And he can sum it up in this one sentence. Pastor Lawrence loves, his thing is just, Jesus is better. Right? Jesus is better. Better than anything the world has to offer, Jesus is better. Um, now, not only am I giving you the summary, but I also gave you a handout. Everybody got their handout? I don't have mine with me. Um, and some of you say that... Um, when, when the, the, the passage at the beginning, the reader reads a really long passage, they know I'm preaching. And then the other thing they know I'm preaching is if you get a handout. And today, we got a two-for-one deal. You got a double feature. You got two for the price of one. So it's definitely me preaching. Uh, and it's, and it, I guess I'm a teacher at heart, and I'm also, I just, I wanted to let the passage speak to you this morning. I felt like if we didn't hear the entire Hebrews 13, and I specifically chose New Living Translation, which is written in more modern English. It's a translation I often use when I'm with international students who English is their second language. I just feel like it, it makes it really, really clear in modern English what the author is trying to tell us and teach us and exhort us as he concludes this long sermon. So if you look on your sheet, your handout, 
Uh, can somebody give me one? I actually need it as a reference to do so. Um, it, it contrasts the temporary and imperfect Levitical priesthood with the permanent and perfect priesthood of Christ. So I'd like you to take this home and look at it, but we're even going to take a minute to look at it this morning. And uh, first thing I want to do is just read two passages from Hebrews that I feel like are central. The first one is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. This is how the author introduces the sermon, the letter to us. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And one more passage I want us to, to think about. I'm going to give you actually a moment to, to reflect on this. Is, is Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we, pro we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So what I want you to do now is you have this sheet in front of you. There's these two passages we just read. I just want you to take about a minute. We're going to be silent. There's no music playing. And just, just look at this. Look at what Jesus has done for you and, and think about what God has taught you over these past five months. And, just, and I'll, I'll close us with a really short prayer. God, I thank you for this time to come as a congregation to study this important text, this important teaching of our Christian faith. But most importantly, I, I thank you for showing us what you've done for us in Jesus, that he is the great high priest, that he provides full access to God. We have direct access to the God of the universe that he saves us completely and makes us perfect forever, that he brought us a new covenant, 
that he offered himself, that he sacrificed once for all, his, and sins were cleansed once for all, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and that we have a true reality, we have good things coming, we have a hope and a future. And I thank you that he cleansed us fully and internally, and he cleansed our consciousness so that we know that we are righteous and made clean through his sacrifice. God, I don't know, as each person goes home and this week they kind of reflect on what they've learned, I pray that you, you work in all of our hearts and may, may we really think through your word and how you teach us through your word and you teach us as a congregation and in our small groups and individually as we study this and, and that what we learned would just penetrate our hearts and we would live for you and, and, and worship you and, and love you with all our hearts and minds and soul and strength and love our neighbor. The overflow of that is we could live out being Christ-like and we would remember that you are the great high priest, that our sins are forgiven. And we just praise you and thank you for the promises you made to us through this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the next thing I wanted to do is just look at uh, chapter 13 and just think about it. And what, is it, what does it mean for us? And if, if, if we think about the book as a whole, it seems like the author of Hebrews has some, not really patterns, but he does something like this. He tells us what Jesus did for us. He warns us how not to live. He encourages us how to live. He tells us what D Jesus did for us. Maybe he shows us that Jesus is better than the other things we want to turn to instead of Jesus. Then he warns us how not to live, and then he tells us what Jesus did for us, and then he encourages us how to live. Have you noticed some of those patterns? He, he says, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. This is what you should do. He, he continually brings us through this cycle. And there's, there's a list of commands. There's things to do. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He says, throw off the sin that entangles. And even chapter 13, there's a lot of, of things, commands. Um, and actually, uh, I've been studying this and, and thinking about commands in the Bible. I remember one time I was studying Romans and really thinking through it. And it seems like at the beginning of Romans, He's, he's kind of presenting the gospel, almost from creation to Adam to, to Abraham to Moses to David, the whole thing. He's like, this is how bad you, this is how good God is. This is how bad you are. This is what God did in Jesus. And then he, it, this is where the Jews fit in and how it all fits together in Romans 9 through 11. And then in Romans 12, he's like, therefore, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then Romans 13, it's, it's kind of a list of how to live your faith. And I thought, does the author of Hebrews do that? And in a sense, he does. But he also inserts ways to live along the way. Maybe that's the style. That's what the congregation needed. Um, and maybe that's what we need. So as we look at it, I want us to think about that. And I was thinking about commands. So a lot of people say, oh, the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is, is all grace. And, and, but then the New Testament tells us to do a lot of things. Uh, actually, I, I looked up the number. And in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there are 613 commands. Um, but in the New Testament, there's 1,050 commands. So God isn't against telling us how to live. He wants us to follow him. Uh, commands aren't a bad, rules aren't a bad thing. I, red lights are great. I'm glad that red lights exist or 
cars would slam into me when people don't follow the rules. So, so there's something about the balance between following his commands and trusting him and, and not going back to the law of Moses. Because the whole book of Hebrews, he's trying to tell them, don't go back to the law of Moses. Don't go back to the old way. Jesus provides a better way. So then why in chapter 13 does he give us a list of commands? And I don't have time to go into all the theology of this. Uh, there's some really, you know, this is, this is a deep way of thinking about the Bible and, and trusting God. Uh, but I, I do want to say this. It says, we don't strive to follow God's commands to be saved. Because we are saved and set free from the bondage of sin and death, we can follow God's commands and, and realize that they're better for us and that, and that they're what we need. And then when we fall short, we accept God's grace and forgiveness. Why do we come to the Lord's table, take the Lord's Supper uh, once a month to be resaved? No, of course not. We do that to remember that we're sinful, broken people in, in continual need and being reminded of the grace that was given to us as he died, as his body was broken and his blood was shed. But the, the commands are good. If we follow them, it's like red lights. Red lights are good because they keep us from getting hit by another car. You know, they, they keep things the way that they're meant to be. Roads, you need to follow the rules for everything to work on the roads. And we as Christians need to trust God with his perfect plan and his will for us. So when we come to these lists in the New Testament, we're not saved because we follow these lists. Because we're saved, we can trust God and say, these are what he has for us. These, these, this is the way we were meant to live. If things were right and the world wasn't broken, we could keep on loving our brothers and sisters. We could show hospitality to strangers. We could remember those in prison. We could remember those being mistreated. We could, we could do these things. So I, ju I just wanted to take a little side excursion and, and, and help you process that. You can maybe process this deeper in your small groups, but the, the Bible, the Christian life is us following God's commands, but we're not following them to be saved. We're following them because we're saved and because they're better. And God's way is always better. But when we fall short, when we fail, he's there to forgive us. He's already forgiven us on the cross. All right, so let's look at 13. So I was reading a bunch of commentaries, and I found this one that was really fascinating. So N.T. Wright was commentating on this, and he says, sex, power, money, and suffering, that the newspaper will be filled with these things. It's what sells. And he's like, you can find, and these are all in this list in Hebrews 13, all these, these topics. And he says, but in the newspaper, you rarely will find anybody talking about Jesus. And then he says this, yet here, in the closing chapter of one of the great documents of early Christianity, we find sex, power, money, and suffering, and Jesus. What's more, he's the one who makes sense of all the rest. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The writer wants us to realize that if your faith is firmly rooted in him, none of the forces that blow people off track and into the newspapers need harm you. And... Um, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of, of the brokenness and, and following Jesus and, and how do we follow him in a sinful world, he keeps bringing us back to Jesus. So let's look at it. Chapter 13, verse 1. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. 
And this is a reference to a couple times in the Old Testament uh, where, you know, the angel of the Lord or angels came and, and uh, visited them. Uh, remember those in prison as, as if you were there yourself. And if you notice at the end of the letter, he, he acknowledges that Timothy's getting out of prison. <laughs> so the Christians at this time were actually being imprisoned you know, throughout the Roman Empire. Just like today, there are brothers and sisters. Many of them are imprisoned for their faith. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. And we prayed about this earlier. Then he says, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. He's talking about sexual purity and trusting God's way. God's way is best. God created the way for marriage and we can trust him in that. And then the next one I feel like is, is really powerful in our society. And I don't know, we all need to memorize this. It says, don't love money. I love the way the New Living kind of just puts it in modern English. Just don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. The old translations would say, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Um, this is a quote from uh, Deuteronomy and from Joshua. At the end, after Moses gives them the law and Joshua takes them into the land, he promises them that God is with them, that they have nothing to fear. But the author of Hebrews wants to put this with money. So my challenge for you today is, what would it mean for you to not love money and to be satisfied with what you have, to be content? It's hard. We live in a place, we live in a capitalistic society where money makes the world go round. And God is calling us as believers to live differently. I don't know what this means for each of us individually. It's, it's, it, it's going to mean different things. It's going to mean you giving sacrificially. It's going to mean you trusting God with your money. It doesn't mean don't go out and make money, because if you make a lot of money, you can give a lot of money to God's kingdom. So that's, that's not what this is saying. It's not saying be poor, live in a cave. It, it's saying trust God, be satisfied with what you have, but don't love money. Then it says, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? And this is a quote from, I think, Psalm 116 or 118. God is the one who we should fear, not people. So many times in life we fear others. We fear the judgment of people. We fear what they're going to think or what they're going to say. But the person who created them is the one we should really fear. Again, this doesn't mean that you go and bulldoze over people. There's other passages that teach us how to deal with people, how to love people. But at the end of the day, God will never leave us. He'll never fail us. He'll never abandon us. And he is our helper. We should look to him and, and fear only him. Uh, it says, remember your leaders. And as a pastor, as a leader, yeah, we, we are striving hard to follow God. We're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. But when you guys honor us and, and really try to encourage us, it makes the whole thing work better. A church built on bitterness and strife and fighting is not a good place to be, and it doesn't show the world how good the gospel is. It shows the world that the church is just like everything else. Yes, we'll make mistakes. Jesus gives, if, if you have a problem with us, come and talk to us individually. And that's what Jesus says himself. Those are his words. You know, we will make mistakes. We will fail you. We will forget to reply to emails. We will forget to 
you might come to us on Sunday morning, ask us a question, and Tuesday you have no response because we're busy, we have a lot going on, we're, we're frail humans, but we're here to serve you. We really are seeking God each day. Work with us and we'll work with you. If we're doing something flat out wrong, flat out simple, call us out. That's okay. But um, remember your leaders. And then um, I love this. this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And most scholars, I was studying this, just think this just means Jesus was there in the Old Testament. Abraham, the faith chapter, Abraham, Noah, they put their faith, they didn't know Jesus as we know him, as the incarnate Son of God who lived and died and rose again on the cross, but they put their faith in God. He's the same then, he was the same now, and he's going to be the same in the future. This is a promise that we can cling, cling to and hold fast to. So, so do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace. What a beautiful statement. Our strength comes from God's grace. Not from rules, not from regulations. So earlier I said, you know, the commands are good. And then in the middle of commands, he's saying our strength doesn't come from following the commands. It comes from God's grace. You see how he's... What he's trying to do is say these commands are good and they're life-giving, but if these commands become your God, you've, lost, you've missed the whole message of the gospel. Our strength comes from the grace that we've been given. That's how we can follow him and trust him and live for him. He says, not from rules about food, which don't help, you, which don't help those who follow them. And then I love this in 10. He says, we have an altar from which the priests in the tabernacle have no right to eat. One translator called this, one uh, commentator called this the Christian altar. We have this new tabernacle, this place where we can just come to God. Under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place. And the bodies of the animals were buried outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by the means of his own blood. You see how he's telling you a command, but then he's showing you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you? We always go back to Jesus. We always go back to his grace. So Jesus suffered out and died outside the city gate to make his people holy by the means of his own blood. So let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Sometimes when we follow Jesus, it puts us outside the culture. The culture thinks this world is their permanent home. This is it. So they're investing everything into today, into their future. But we as Christians are investing into a heavenly city, into a kingdom of God. I think it's John Piper, one of them, said, if the gospel wasn't true, would your life make sense? <laughs> you know, if... if your life should not make sense. Only, your life should only make sense if the gospel's true. The way you live each day, the decisions you make, how you spend your money, how you love others, how you talk to your neighbors. If, if the gospel's not true, then your life wouldn't make sense, but it makes sense in light of the gospel. Why do we foster? Why do we love refugees? Why do we take care of people in need? Why do we give our money to countries and go places and pray that God would move in the hearts of unreached peoples 
because this world is not our permanent home. And we're looking forward to a better home yet to come. There are people who don't know that there's something better than this world. And we're called to love them and tell them that and show them that. And the hope that we bring and show them as a community of, of believers is, and loving them and, and bringing them into this is, is, is what's going to, the seeds of the gospel are going to be planted in them. And, and we're praying that God will plant churches and, and go all throughout the world so that people will know that this world is not our permanent home. Then it says in 15, Therefore let us through Jesus uh, offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. In Matthew it says, In his name the nations will put their hope. Our hope is in his name. And don't forget to do good, to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Again, he goes back, obey your spiritual leaders. Maybe they had a problem obeying their leaders. Uh, and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls. They are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That, uh, that would certainly not be for your benefit. Then he says, pray for us. Especially pray that he'll be able to come back to them. And now the final part of today's sermon. I want us to look at this, this amazing benediction. It's really neat that Pastor Josh, as he was praying through like new members and kind of, he's really trying to incorporate scripture into how we bless the congregation. And God laid upon his heart last week to use this benediction as the way to, to really challenge our new members and commit, commission them and call them to be members of Waypoint Church. And I love this benediction. It says, now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. There's so much rich theology just in this statement. I could just preach a whole sermon. I could write a, I could preach a sermon series on just this statement, what God's done for us, what it means to be sheep, what it means for him to be the shepherd, what the eternal covenant was made by his blood. What it means that he's the God of peace. Praise God that our God is the God of peace. Now, I love this. This is what I really want us to hone in on. This is what I was thinking about as I was doing all this home building. May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. And I looked up this word equip. Now, the ESV translation tries to always, the same Greek word, they try to keep the same English word throughout. That way it's closer to the original language. But even the ESV, to translate this Greek word, these are the various English words that it's translated throughout the New Testament. To mend, to train, to unite, to supply, to create, to equip, to prepare, to restore, or bring restoration. Even the word, if, if you look in uh, 13, um, in, in 13 he says, um, when he talks about creating the world, the creation, it's the same word. Um, sorry, I, I lost the reference. In 11.3, sorry, back to chapter 11. When the universe was created through the word of God, not in 13, in 11.3, that word created is the same uh, Greek word as here, it's equipped. So there's something about this word that just has a powerful, powerful meaning for us. And I was thinking about equip, so I brought some props. So, I'm, so you're getting a three for one today. So this, 
So I have popcorn ceiling. I have an 80s house. And popcorn ceiling was like the worst design in the history of the world. I think it was cheap or easy back then. But I, I called a guy up and I said, hey, I have a 14 by 14 room. How much would it cost to have the popcorn ceiling removed? He said, $600 in a day and a half. And this is like a professional. I'm like, holy cow, what a mess. You know? So I looked online. I looked on you. I've done so many projects at my house these past few weeks without looking on YouTube first and failed miserably. So I looked on YouTube. This roller is $4. If you buy this roller you, and you buy this thing, this cover, you can actually paint the popcorn ceiling very easily in your house. If you buy any other kind of roller, you can read horror stories on YouTube. If you, I mean on the internet. If you buy the roller, just the regular paint roller and start rolling, all the popcorn ends up in the roller. And now you're, you have to call the guy for 600 bucks. When I was at Lowe's, I mean, there was a guy there buying a sprayer because he ruined his son's popcorn ceiling. He came from up north, his son lives down here, he was gonna paint the popcorn ceiling, he used a regular roller. The regular roller's $4 and this roller's $4. But you have to use this roller and this thing to catch the paint. And you can paint your whole room in like 30 minutes, the first coat. So if you're equipped with the right equipment and you know what you're doing, you can actually get the job done. And I begin to think about that. I have, I have one more prop, the magic eraser. When your kids write on walls and write Right up, the magic eraser is the right equipment that you don't have to repaint the baseboard. You can just use this. Um, so if you have the right equipment, you can get the job done well. And I really was literally pondering this passage as I was failing around my house with the wrong equipment. And then I would watch the professional. And I was like, holy cow, that's how you do it. You know, like I spent so many hours trying to do it my way. And I watched the guy who knew how to do it right. I remember one time I watched this video online where this guy like takes apart his iPhone and puts a new battery in, and it looks so easy. I totally destroyed the iPhone. I cracked the screen. I mean, it was, it was a mess. But if you're equipped with the right equipment and you know what to do and you're empowered and you, and you, you can actually do it. And it says here, it, we pray, may God equip us with all we need, not all we need to do our will or what we want, but to do His will. And then it says, may he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. So I want us to focus on these two things. I want you to remember this. Equip, that he's going to equip us and he's going to give us what we need. Now there's other passages in the New Testament where it talks about the body of Christ. Not everybody does everything all the time. We're a body. We work together. So part of the equipping, I think, is not one person has all the talent to run the whole body of Christ. We're equipped to work together. Like the painter paints the house and the window guy puts in the windows. I probably wouldn't want the, the painters putting in my windows, right? But the guy who's equipped to do it is the best at it. So, there, so I want to pray that we would ask God and, and really claim this promise that we would be equipped and we trust that he's equipping us with all that we need. And even though we look around and we're like, I'm not equipped, it's a mess. God is working in us and in the body to equip us for all we need for doing his will. May he produce in you, and I believe this is a plural you, this is like you, the, the, the body that he's, he's talking to. Sometimes when we read New Testament letters, we read them as it's just for us. But they're writing them to a church. There are maybe one or, there's a few New Testament letters that are written more to an individual, but generally they're written to a church. So when it's you, it's, the, it's, it's us. May he produce in us, through the power of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, every good thing. Not every good thing that we think is good, 
but every good thing that is pleasing to him. And then he says, all glory to him forever and ever. Amen. So let's let our will become Christ's will for us. That's what's best. These commands don't save you. They just these things, loving others, loving your neighbor, they're not they're they're not to be a burden, they're to be a blessing, to bring you into Christ's community so that your will becomes his will. And you can rest in him. Then he goes on, I love this. This is kind of a little comedic relief. He says in 22. I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to pay attention to what I have written in this brief exhortation. So maybe back then their sermons were a little longer because he thinks that this is brief. So you think I go long or Pastor Lawrence or Pastor Josh goes long. Just, just be glad he's not your, your main preacher. Then he goes on to talk about how Timothy was in prison and he's released. And then he says, greet all your leaders. This is a real letter from real people. Sometimes I think when we read the Bible, we think it's like this powerful voice from heaven and it's so removed from, from our present reality. But there's people in prison. There's, there's greetings. And then he ends with this. May God's grace be with you all. And I want to end us with that. May God's grace be with us all. Let's pray. God... I pray, I thank you for that you're the God of peace, that you brought Jesus up from the dead, that he's the great shepherd of the sheep, that you ratified an an eternal covenant by his blood, that you're going to equip us as your body, as your people, with all we need for doing your will, that you're going to produce in us through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. And God, I thank you that your grace is with us all. Thank you for this time to study Hebrews. God, I pray that we always remember your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.